This is episode number 155 of the Rising Man podcast with Corey Sheik. There's room for both your truth and my truth to coexist. What's up, family? Jetty Azuma here, your host and the creator of the Rising Man podcast, welcoming you back for another amazing episode here today. Before we get into my guest for today's episode, I want to make sure you guys remember to go check out our latest Rising Man offering, our 12-week online course called Ignite. For any of you guys out there who are looking to level up in your life, who are looking for really just a compilation of some amazing distinctions around manhood, masculinity, how to activate your purpose, and really how to access who you are and let that person come through, let that man shine through. Ignite is designed to do just that. And so I really encourage all of you guys to go check it out, whether you've been doing this for years or you're just stepping in for the first time, go to risingman.org slash ignite and get yourself registered today. Cause I'm telling you guys, it's powerful. It's powerful. The first few weeks of men being in this course have been incredible and you can sign up at any time. It's ongoing. You do the course and the content at your pace. You get to be a part of the community and our weekly calls for as long as you're in the Ignite container. So it's a no brainer, guys. Go ahead and do it. All right, so let me introduce my guest for today's episode. Corey Sheik is a modern spiritual teacher, speaker, healer, writer, meditation, and movement instructor, and a martial artist. Sheik has one singular mission, supporting those who are open to the realization of eternal peace, limitless creativity, balanced wellness, and unconditional love for life and all others. In 2016, Sheik founded his second wellness venture, Infinite Life, which is a central hub for supporting individuals in the realms of heart-centered entrepreneurship, holistic healing, and a modern model of self-realization. In this episode, Corey and I deconstructed the journey that every man walks to finding his truth. First, we broke down the word truth and how to make room for our personal truths and the truth of others without feeling threatened by someone having different beliefs than ours. We both shared how we armored ourselves and learned to survive as shy kids navigating teenage years and adolescence. Corey shared his journey of becoming self-aware and how he learned to optimize his physical, mental, and spiritual self after first living the indulgent party lifestyle. Lastly, we discussed why it is essential to question everything before deciding what we believe in and learning to become critical thinkers in order to lead a fulfilling life. This and so much more, but without further ado, Mr. Corey Sheik. Rising Man Tribe, I got Corey Sheik coming in from Ottawa, Canada, where it's freezing cold, I hear. Snow on the ground. <laughs> How are you doing today, bro? I'm good. It's not too bad yet. I mean, we're, we're used to like minus 30, 40, but now we're like near zero with snow, which is my favorite. So I like it. Yeah, dude. Well, I'm in, I live in California where once it goes below 50 degrees, people declare a state of emergency and, <laughs> and we don't know what to do with ourselves, at least on the coastal California. So... Yeah, True. man. Yeah. When you start talking <laughs> negatives, we don't need, we're like, wait a second, the thermometer can go negative. We don't, we don't oh, understand yeah, that's that. True, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, man, great to have you on here today. I know I paused us before we started recording here because we were already starting to drop in pretty heavy. You got a amazing story in the martial arts background that you had and why you started to get into martial arts and how that's evolved into wellness and giving that as a gift back to the community. So 
I'm looking forward to jumping into all that. But first, I want to ask you this question. For you, what is the difference between a boy and a man? Hmm. I feel there's a certain maturity that comes with devoting ourselves to truth. And I feel that as a boy, you know, truth isn't necessarily, it's something we're tapped into because, you know, all children I feel in a certain degree are, but it's not something necessarily, especially in our culture that we're kind of fixated on, you know, in regards to how do we navigate ourselves in all ways, you know, in a righteous way and in a true way. And although like that may differ from boy to boy, depending on their father, depending on their upbringing, I know for myself, the real difference between me, you know, moving through that transition or that initiation was coming into a devotion to truth above all else. So it's not just about my own, you know, individual, you know, say survival or, you know, manifestation of my own individual desires as a primary, it's, it's primarily, well, what is true? And how do I live and act and speak and think and everything in, in every way in devotion to that? And whether that brings up a lot of pain, you know, to, you know, in revealing my own darkness or my own ignorance, that's just a part of the game. And I think that's what, what a true like man would be willing to do. I like that. I, I want to hear you define truth because I, I find that truth can be a really tricky word for people these days. So what is truth? When you use that word, what do you mean by that? Well, I feel truth is a feeling like, you know, it's like there's things that we know and there's things that we believe in, right? It's like if I say, okay, do I believe that I have hands or do I know that I have hands? Well, I know I have hands and there's nothing to it. Like I don't need to rationalize it or discuss it or debate it. You know, it's just like, I know that I have hands. To say that I believe in my, I have hands. I mean, it could be true, but there's no real use in that because belief is just, it's faulty, you know, like there's a passing nature to belief. It could change, it it, it evolves, it, it gets destroyed, it, it rebirths itself again, you know, like belief is always changing. Whereas there's a sense of knowing that we, you know, progressively deeping into like a love for a child or love for your, your pet or the love for yourself. I mean, there's, there's a certain essence to knowing that's just different. Right. And I feel like what's important is that, I mean, on my path, at least, you know, one thing that really stood out to me once I I remember reading it somewhere and then it just became a part of my, my journey, which was like, you know, in the search, let's say for the topic of God, like that's a big topic, you know, and, and that's generally an objectified idea that's been told to us. This is what God is. Right. But the reality is it doesn't matter how far we go in searching for this objective God. It's only going to be through our own subjective experience that we come to know that directly. Right. So truth is both an objective, but also very much a subjective experience because we have to go through it in our own path that we have to uncover it through our own individual perception. So that's where truth can be varying. However, what I've come to know and see on my own path as I work with others, I have many friends or, you know, discussions like this, where a lot of times the core essence of things that we know are things that we all know. Like love, you know, the connection to acting righteously and, you know, just, you know, having some common sense in life and treating people with respect. You know, these are things that as we come to know it, we all kind of equalize with that. We all kind of know these same things under maybe more underlying and maybe it's more obvious. But it's why when we look at all spiritual traditions, for instance, many of the teachings were very similar, you know, like the golden rule is in every tradition. It's, these are from teachers or teachings that are in different geographies, different timelines, but speaking the same words. So I feel like that subjective, objective polarity is something that's, that can be tricky, but 
if we're devoted to truth in our own path and uncovering like what do we know like what can we actually put all our eggs in not things that we're just kind of believing in that's where i feel like we can be guided and, and becomes way more clear over time i don't know if you resonate with that but yeah well i do resonate with that a lot i tend to use a little bit of different terminology just based on how i was taught and let me know if this intersects with what you said i have a teacher a man named scott cody and he practices a method of leadership called ontological language. And really what that means is that the way that we are in relationship with each other through the medium of language. And I feel like it's chapter one. I feel like it's like lesson one, first page of the book is truth. In this lineage of teachers, they identified that truth is such a tricky thing for us because there's ultimately two different kinds of truth, like you said, the subjective and the objective. They call it the uppercase or capital T true and the lowercase t, true. The uppercase t is things that are reserved for fact, assertions, things that I believe you said are undeniably like, I know I have hands because look, there's hands in front of me. We all agree that this is called a hand in the English language. Every language has a word for what this is and it's a hand, it's a part of my body. The same way that two plus two equals four. Anybody who wants to dispute that as true is just being contrary. There's certain things we agree upon, but that that piece of the pie that we call truth that is actually uppercase T or fact is so small relative to the subjectivity of the rest of truth. And whether or not my lowercase T truth is moving in the same direction as your lowercase T truth, we still have our own unique perspectives, our subjective viewpoint on how to get there. Maybe there is a universal truth about love. A lot of people talk about these universal truths. And I, I always question, I'm like, what do you mean by that? Because even in that universal truth is what has led to a lot of genocide in this world, right? This is what's true. And if you don't believe it, we're going to kill you, right? So I always question that because to me, universal truth are the things that nobody would argue with. And I think there's everything else I just put into that other category. So does that fit along the lines with what you're saying? Yeah, no, it's a great way of putting it. I feel it's a very like human way of, of interacting because yeah, I mean, like my lineage in many ways comes from a lot of old school ways of perspectives that I admire. And at the same time, I'm constantly in that place of learning the dynamics of how, how do we differentiate between the nuances of what we're speaking about, you know, because, and especially in a time now where it's like all knowledge is available, like in this like new age or whatever, you know, it's like, all knowledge is available. So we have access to like all the teachings. And now through within that, there's a creative kind of exploration of, of the new story being written as well, you know, within all of these kind of different teachings. So I like that way of putting it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that you say devotion to truth, because if we are going with that uppercase T, lowercase T, I think of how do I take devotion to truth in my journey as a man? For me, it's the devotion to what I believe to be true to my convictions, my beliefs, my values also. And that word devotion is so underutilized in our society, man. I don't even use that word that much. I heard you say devotion to truth. And I was like, ooh, that sounds good. That feels good to me. Cause I feel like that's how I'm living my life. But even just having that framework for what it means to be a man, that I am devoting myself, committing myself to further uncovering and living into the truth that I see in front of me. Wow, what a simple reference point for what it means to be a man in this world. 
Yeah, yeah, agreed. Like you said, it's it's a terminology, but the terminology is helpful. And at the same time, that kind of like ignition of the path, you know, like for a man to awaken, let's say, like to awaken to themselves on some level, even if it's just a glimpse or, you know, a, a rooted knowing, that awakening kind of ignites this path that's like, whether we use devotion or just a fixation point on like this discovery, you know, this ongoing uncovery of themselves, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's almost like the brakes are off. That's how I experienced directly devotion. You know, it's like you've taken off the brakes and you've just surrendered yourself to like what is true or, you know, what is of the highest good for yourself and those you love and all those around you, the universe, you know, God, whatever the term. Yeah, there's this this kind of fixation point. That's kind of how I've experienced it on my path. And, you know, that's been cultivated for many years. And I do feel it, it very much is a cultivation, you know, like there has to be this kind of fixated, you know, disciplined yet compassionate approach to our journey of, of self-discovery, of self-realization and awakening as a whole, you know, and, and all the fruits that that brings. But with fruits comes the pain and the discomfort and, you know, all of it, right? So like you said, like that commitment, you know, if we don't have that commitment, then it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to just, you know, kind of take a break. And I mean, we could take breaks, but, you know, at a certain point, it just kind of consumes you a little bit, you know? Right. Well, let's take all of this rich context and definition that we've put into truth and take a little bit of a turn to get to know you better. Because you were telling me a little bit about yourself before we got to recording today. And what I didn't get to tell you was you said eighth, ninth grade, you weighed 90 pounds. That was my story, man. I was the little guy. I was a great athlete, but I also was the smallest kid in my class and smallest kid amongst my peers. And where I think truth fits into this is because I felt at risk. I felt very unsafe being smaller, not being as strong. My friends were all developing. I was a little bit of a late bloomer when it came to puberty. So they're all like blowing up with these muscles and hair everywhere. And I still felt like a child. And so that was one of those moments in my life where I started to manipulate my truth in the form of putting on the armor, putting on a mask hiding the more sensitive, vulnerable parts of myself because it didn't feel safe to be that amongst my peers anymore. So tell us a little bit about your story and what your version of armoring and concealing your truth looked like. Yeah, well, I mean, my dad was in the military, so we kind of just moved around everywhere. You know, I went to like five different elementary schools from, you know, kindergarten to grade six. So it was kind of constantly this effort of needing to quickly fit in, you know, like you said, like feel safe, feel welcome, feel accepted by the tribe and then navigate, you know, relationships as quickly as possible before I knew I was off to the next. So it created kind of this habitual programming of this kind of, yeah, need to secure survival within the tribe, if you will. And that manifested as many kind of tendencies of, like you said, like inauthentically expressing to fit in or to kind of navigate the new territory that I was in, you know? So it was a really interesting way of growing up. And so then by the time of like getting into, you know, rooting in Ottawa here in, in 2000, you know, that habitual way of, of being kind of was the way it was. And and so then now when I'm rooted in a tribe that I, I'm stuck in for quite a while, all of a sudden that starts to come to the surface because individuals or friends may start 
start to see you for who you really are versus how you've presented yourself, you know, or how you've tried to fit in in certain ways. And, and that was kind of this kind of initial revealing moving into my initial teen years where, you know, all the bullying and all the power dynamics, especially within men and, and boyhood at that age became really prevalent. And like you said, you know, that feeling of unsafe or, you know, just not understanding the direction here, you know, like what, what are we doing here <laughs> kind of thing that was always really confusing to me. And, you know, and then there's so many other plethora of things we can get into and how we're conditioned as children. And by the time we're teens, you know, like whether it's the food we're eating or what we're watching or, you know, what we're exposed to through our parents and teachers, we don't really necessarily have the tools, or at least at that time, certainly didn't have the tools to navigate other than at that point, okay, let me get bigger and stronger. So that's like the weightlifting side of things, you know, which, you know, blew me up from 90 pounds, 140 pounds and less than a year. And so all of a sudden now I have some respect. I feel this power. You know, my body's filled with injuries from weightlifting and stuff, but like it was a worthy trade-off at that point, you know, that kind of navigated into the martial arts thing that we were speaking of. You know, my principal had a boxing club that I started and then got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, got into Muay Thai, got into wrestling, got into all the mixed martial arts elements. You know, by the end of my high school at 18, I'm well on the track to, you know, becoming a professional martial artist, a mixed martial artist at that point. So that was an interesting turn of events because naturally, physically, you know, I had all these things down and I, and I was talented like you, I was athletic and, you know, I had all of this, you know, going for me, but all of those insecurities, all of that anxiety, all of the traumas, all of the underlying emotions that were stored just naturally kept coming up. You know, they kept revealing themselves and, you know, after initial win streak, you know, after my first loss, all of a sudden my self-doubt and my anxiety and my fear of my ability to perform all of a sudden comes to the surface again. And it wasn't that long before, you know, I self-destructed and ran away from my whole dream in this kind of fighting realm into, you know, the bar scene and doing the typical, you know, early 20s university type life, you know, getting a bouncing job and going out all the time and just like living that. And before we get into that part, because that's another really important chapter, I just want to pick apart some of the gold in there because it's so interesting how parallel our stories are. When I was 90 pounds and I was looking at all these guys starting to get muscles around me and working out, I'm like, all right, I got to do that. So I started working out. I put on like 30 pounds of muscle in a year, which is, you know, and also finally my testosterone kicked in. So I grew a little bit, which helped. And I started boxing too. I started boxing at that age. My friend across the street at the time, his dad had a guy who worked for him who had won Golden Gloves, uh, the tournament in New York when he was younger. And so he just threw him a few bucks to come over and train us a couple times a week. It gave me such a sense of confidence where I didn't have that before. But and maybe you can relate to this. I know for me, it gave me something to put in front of myself. You know, the muscles in the working out, you know, the six pack, the, you know, the fact that I could hit a bag really hard. My hands were fast. It gave me something to hide behind. It gave me a shield to hide myself behind that worked for a while, to be honest. You know, it pretty much got me all the way through high school. And then I got into college and I didn't really pick up martial arts until a little bit later on. I kept going with uh, bodybuilding and I was doing bodybuilding competitions. So now I was really ripped, you know, like 5% body fat, you know, winning competitions and people just, you know, waving their hands and, and bowing to me saying, whoa, dude, you're ripped. How do you do that? Edifying this armor that was working for me. And at the same time, it was hiding so much of the other stuff. And, and so I, I just want to talk about that chapter before we get into the 
the spiral downward, right? Where, where the armor finally fails. So is there anything else that you would share about that time of your life of what was going on and what you learned about yourself? Well, I feel, yeah, it's this kind of perpetuation of the traditional, you know, education we've had and the the context of what it means to be a man, you know, in our modern age, right? Which, yeah, generally starts with kind of the athletic flow in the, in the early years being in sports or going that down that path and then having the status within, let's say, a you know, a, a teenage world of, you know, high school or whatever you're involved in. It's all about, yeah, like, where's the power hierarchy, you know, and, and how do you demonstrate that power hierarchy? It's generally through your physical strength it's through your ability with women or the females it's through your your status with you know uh, peers it's it's there's a number amount of things but you know at the core yeah if we haven't been taught like what it means to you know for instance tune to our emotional space you know tune to like what's going on in our body i mean much of that period like many men who get into bodybuilding or or you know any sort of athletics there's a nutritional component but the nutritional component obviously is lacking for the most part for most of us because it's a perpetuation of, you know, just like insane amounts of protein and a lot of processed foods and just like, how do we just fill ourselves up? You know, I remember going, cutting weight for a fight and then going to eat like a huge thing of pasta, you know, like the, the right after and shit like this, you know? And so there were so many layers to how I just didn't know how to access what was underneath it all. So I just continued to perpetuate these things I had learned. And that just, you know, again, kept hitting, I mean, you know, hitting that crash, like anyone who hits a crash in their life, I mean, there's so many signs before that, obviously, that come to us and show us, okay, there's something wrong, there's something wrong, there's something wrong, you know? And that was ongoingly, whether it was my own inner anger and frustration I couldn't deal with, so I would just go to the gym and beat someone up, you know? Or or whether it's my body, just like, whether it's acne or whether it was my back injuries or all of the different, you know, issues I was having in my body that so many young men go through in their early years through sports and these things where there's a fixation on a goal, there's either you die or you achieve the goal at all costs, you know? And now, I mean, I'm only 30 and I'm, I'm feeling my body, you know what I mean? (laughs) Even after many years of healing. Right. So, yeah. Totally. Yeah, man. Well, I think going back in time for myself, when I was bodybuilding was when I was in my early twenties and I was starting to feel some of the things, like you said, those, those initial warning bells going off a couple of injuries that were more than just the rolled ankle. When you're a kid, man, you roll your ankle and you're back on the field like the next day, (laughs) you know, so fast. And I was starting to see, oh, these are bigger injuries. They're not just getting better or going away. But that voice wasn't louder than the voice that said, but look how great you look. Look at all the attention that you're getting. Look at what people have to say about you. You're important. People recognize you. People know who you are. That was feeding that part of myself that wasn't getting fed when I was younger. I was addicted to it. It was like a craving. It was a craving to feel important about this thing that I was doing really well. The problem was, is that just like anything else, man, that runs its course. You know, at some point, you know, I wasn't bodybuilding. I wasn't training anymore. And then all of a sudden people forget about that. Once in a while, people would say, oh yeah, you're the guy who used to, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But then eventually it's like, oh no, I'm just an ordinary. It's like guys who are professional athletes, like football players all the time, right? Hall of Famers that were at the peak of their sport that eventually, unless you're like Michael Jordan, who will probably live on forever or LeBron James, they become ordinary people. And then what do you do now? What do you do now when you don't have that facade to conceal all the other sensitivities and vulnerabilities that are unresolved? And how do you make up for that lost time? That's what I found was when I got into my mid twenties, it was like, whoa, this is a part of myself that I locked and closed the door on back when I was a teenager. And I haven't gone in there ever since. 
It's like leaving a bologna sandwich under your seat in your car and just letting it sit there for 10 years. <laughs> and just like, how gnarly does that stuff get? So I don't know if you've had a similar experience. I know you were starting to go into that after the fighting stuff didn't work out, the downward sort of spiral. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it was initially a downward spiral, but it, it wasn't as much as it was just a natural transition, you know, because what you're speaking about in regards to those like identity breaks, you know, the dynamics of my life has very much taken on that kind of constant identity change. And this is very reflective in a system I use called human design. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I'm a 6'3", so it's kind of a never ending kind of ongoing chaos and change into new identities and new hobbies and experiments, if you will. And so that kind of just felt like it was naturally coming to a close. And in amidst with that, you know, I had just gotten into university. I was, you know, writing off of what I felt was a terrible chapter in my high school. I just did not have the best of times other than my outlet, which was, you know, martial arts. And then going into university, which was like, okay, well, now I have this power. Now I'm looking at the females. Like I never really had much in high school. So I'm like, hey, well, what can I, what can I manage, you know, going into university? So that was kind of this new direction I had. And, you know, sure enough, within the first semester, I was heartbroken by this, this female that ended up being my fiance for 10 years, like a relationship that lasted 10 years, this heartbreak ignited a new path. And that was what I began to explore, which was, you know, the kind of dating community or the pickup artist, you know, relationship type dynamic, which was, it's really popular now. Back then it wasn't as popular, but that was a one subset within the personal development community with, for men, that was a kind of a haven, you know, for, for men like me that had no experience with the men, had no understanding how to deal with, with the opposite sex. And, you know, that was kind of my new navigation. So that whole navigation was like going to clubs, going to bars, going to places to like approach and connect with women and learn this game that I had no idea even existed. I'm like, how does this even exist that you can build attraction and then eventually date someone that you never met before outside of like a, you know, a, a class or a hobby or a work environment, right? Which most of us, that's where we, we meet people. So this was kind of a whole new the pathway that, you know, just happened so naturally. So I left the fighting game and then, you know, again, got a bouncing job and was at the club five nights a week. And I went two years where I was just like all in on this whole lifestyle of this very subset group of personal development, which was like most guys probably know about this now. I'm sure you've ran into it or been involved in some regard. But back then it was kind of, yeah, like this small subset within the Tony Robbins-esque personal development scene that had this kind of, you know, community of, of guys that would just go out all the time. So that was a whole new world that opened up, but surely that kind of identity crash of, well, I'm this fighter and this is my lifestyle and this is who I am to, I'm just this guy who goes out all night and looks for women to date or to, to engage with, right? Which which looking at it now is just so funny. It's like 10 years later, but like at that point, it was such an opening to a whole new world of personal development because that's when I started learning about like Eckhart Tolle and, you know, Tony Robbins type stuff. And what does it mean to actually have like an energy about you? And so that was just a whole new can of worms that the realm of martial arts and my teachers there had no understanding of, right? They just knew like hit the pads, get the skill and go beat someone up, right? But I always question, I'm like, why can't anyone help me with my mind? You know, my mind is a wreck, you know what I mean? I, I don't know what I'm doing when I get in there and I'm scared, even though I know I have skill set, right? Well, I think that's such an important period of life that all of us go through, but we don't really acknowledge that that's part of this transition into manhood. Going back to your definition of boy and man, you know, being one who's devoted to truth. Well, first you got to identify what the truth is for yourself, right? 
And I feel like that part, I usually say that there's boy, there's becoming man, and then there's man <laughs> when you're actually living it. That for me, that was my teenage years, pretty much from the age of 16 to 27 when I was seeking. I was looking for truth everywhere I went. I was looking for things that made sense to me, not just things that were true because someone told me that they were, but because I actually believed it and didn't need to force it. It just came into my body and was like, yeah. I mean, the first Capoeira class that I ever took just entered my body and I was like, "This, there's definitely something in here for me. There is something alive in this for me. And the same way all the other things, the first time I sat in a peyote ceremony, right? There's like confirmation internally, but we don't prepare boys for that. I think we prepare them to adopt the beliefs that are convenient for society instead of encouraging them to, and empowering them to go out and seek their own truth. Yeah. Yeah. That's accurate. That, and yeah, just like what's convenient, what's being told, you know, what's the common narrative, what's not going to make you shine too much kind of thing. Right. Or make you an individual, you know, it's more about, yeah. How are you kind of aligning with the group, the team, the whatever, which there's a beauty in team and tribe and all of that, of course, but the beauty in tribe can only flourish when the individual has recognized themselves. And other than that, I mean, you're just, yeah, you're just kind of a cog in a wheel kind of thing. Right. So it's a funny thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it would be less painful for so many young men if they knew that that was okay. I think there's still this social narrative that it's not, a, you have to know. I mean, the best example is going into college. It's a little different than when I went to college, you know, a little over a decade ago, but they expect you to declare your major on day one. I didn't even know what college was. I was like, what am I doing? I'm just going to apply because people are telling me is what I'm supposed to do. I didn't know that that was going to be a major decision in my life. And that was going to affect the next, really the whole trajectory of my whole life. So I think there's this expectation that young people can actually know what they want before they just go out into the world. There's like this safety or security that parents and adults have with knowing that there's a plan for their you know, child, son, daughter, whoever it is. And I found that it's just the opposite because at some point that's just another facade that's going to crumble. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, man. So here we are, right? We're kind of walking our way forward. We're talking about truth and it seems like your identity. So I, I want to hear a little bit more about when did the real genuine essential version of yourself start to reemerge? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, well, you know, in that phase of this kind of, I don't know, girl phase I guess you know like that was what it was really it was just like this admiration with the, the opposite sex that I had never really explored you know that, that itself ran dry at a certain point because after two years of doing that you know once again with which was another product of conditioning but it was helpful in regards to the awareness that okay you know I got this martial arts fitness thing that I feel confident anywhere I go there's no there was no men that I was afraid of at that point in my life then I come into a place where now I feel like I have some sort of understanding with the opposite sex and I feel more confident in myself in that regard but then there's still this kind of missing piece that I'm like okay well you know now I'm like well school I was in business school but it really wasn't doing anything for me and I was hardly ever in class and you know so I was like okay well there's something there though that I feel is important and I had businesses when I was younger in my teens you know doing snow removal and, you know, cutting the grass and shit like this. But there was something in me that wanted to engage into the entrepreneurial direction because in my town in Ottawa, the majority of the adult population works for the government. You know, it's a government town, right? So the whole light, everybody's plan was get a degree, get a guaranteed government job. That's it. And then you work that for 30 years, you get a pension, right? That was at, not at all what 
I was all about. I mean, I wouldn't have been in school if it wasn't for my parents, but like, you know, that whole lifestyle of getting the degree in that, that was, I knew from the get go that there was no way that that's, this was going to work out, you know? So that was where I started navigating into this awareness that, well, I had to create something for myself. You know, I had what I thought was this power, but really it was still feeling like there was something lacking. And I thought entrepreneurship would be that avenue. So it wasn't too far after that, that I, you know, met a friend outside of a club one night and, you know, we started talking, we're both wanting to get into business. He was the last guy I went on a fighting competition with in Calgary. We were both involved in, in fitness and all this. So we're like, Hey, why, why don't we start some sort of like fitness martial arts boot camp? So that kind of clicked and we started working on that over the summer. And then it wasn't too long that we started the first class out of a squash court in our university. And it grew really fast. Within a month, we had 40 people and everyone was like really hyped about it. And it wasn't too long after that, about three or four months, that there was a, a clear direction that we were going to get our own physical location and start this kind of new world of uh, fitness, not necessarily meditation yet, because I wasn't there yet, but it had a new vibe to it that I hadn't seen before in my city. And that period was when I was starting to get into meditation and, you know, like I'd smoke some weed and like, you know, do a meditation at night or something like this, some sort of combination. And it was the only only thing that was really helping me deal with the underlying fact that I was dropping out of school, we were committing all this money, all this time, I was going all in on this business. And the same anxiety I had my whole life was just like, once again, coming to the surface, right? And meditation was the only thing that really was starting to give me some sort of grasp of myself of like, okay, I can do this, you know, I can keep my mind in a place of clarity that we can take the correct actions to make this work. And around that time, you know, bit of marijuana, bit of meditation, lucid dreaming, you know, the whole shebang. That's when I started. That was the first opening that I had. This is about 2011 at this point, three years after I, you know, I did the, the Eckhart Tolle type thing. You know, I was kind of already deep in myself to some degree, but all of a sudden now we start watching certain documentaries about the world, you know, some of these original documentaries like Thrive or Chimatica or I mean, documentaries that really reveal, you know, what people call conspiracies now, but it was just a revealing of, okay, what is the potential system or kind of structure of the world that we live in that I may have not been told or educated on yet, you know? And for my other business part at the time, he was really depressed because he was like, you know, and that can really happen for people. I see it all the time this year, especially people reading conspiracies and they get really depressed, you know? But for me, it was the opposite. I was on a cloud nine because I was like, this is everything that I ever thought. You know, I always thought there was something wrong. There was something not correct with all of the suffering I had faced personally and all of my brothers and sisters also facing, you know, everywhere I looked, it was just the same thing. So that was kind of the initial phase. And I wouldn't consider that the authentic awakening yet. It was just before that. But that was an opening that mixed with entrepreneurship, which was already an, an invigorating and, an, and a very empowering phase. Then seeing that all my kind of intuitive understandings of the fact of why I didn't want to do the nine to five, why I didn't want to do all that, which I don't have anything against that. But for me, it wasn't correct. You know, it kind of just revealed the reality that, oh, yeah, there's something else here, you know, and that was just pre 2012. So it was quite interesting. <laughs> well, and I think that's so cool, man. We keep coming back to this theme of truth in my mind, because part of that seeking journey of finding truth also requires that we develop enough courage to question things. Even I know a lot of guys who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, who still haven't questioned some of the things that were told to them to be true, that are still so locked in the dogma of belief. And again, because that's just another source of safety and security. If I can rest my hat on this truth and never have to change my beliefs or question it, it's more secure. I don't have to think about it, right? I can just kind of etch that in stone, tuck it into the back of my memory box and keep moving forward. But 
I think it's way more important that, especially at that stage of life, that we encourage people to be critical thinkers, to to begin thinking for themselves, to question things. And I think usually it goes to one extreme or the other, right? It's the typical story of teenager adolescent rebellion where you say left and they go right just to challenge it and see what happens. But I've noticed this with my son because I have a five-year-old son. He's very good at questioning things. He's what they call an integrity child. He always wants to know why. He, he won't do something if it doesn't make sense to him. And even if we're like, hey, because it's good for your body, he still doesn't necessarily buy it if he doesn't believe it. It's really frustrating as a parent right now, but I know it's going to serve him in his life because I was more of the opposite end of the spectrum. I obeyed everything I was told and taught because I was so terrified of getting in trouble. I was raised with some of those shades of the Christianity and, and Catholicism that said, if you don't do this this way, you ain't going to like the outcome. Right, It ain't going to be good. I can't tell you what's going to happen, but it's not going to be good. So I just wonder your perspective on that. You know, I mean, this the importance of raising people who can think critically and on their own and decide what their own truth is versus just creating robots, in my opinion. Beautiful. And it's beautiful you share about your son. Like That's a really powerful kind of approach that you're taking and just it's probably just a bit of natural unfolding too because it's I know like the strength of his soul or you know just speaking to you and giving you the lesson if you will you know yeah that's it you know and, and I feel like with children especially our role really is just to provide safe space you know at the core I mean I think that's really all I mean I think that just extends into all types of facilitation it's how are we holding safe space and then providing a mirrored guidance when that's necessary at least on my journey, I mean, I was very self-guided in so many ways, but I had so many amazing teachers. And I feel like at the core, though, the majority of my process was a natural innate knowing as to what I had to be doing and a reflection by the mirror of the teacher to reignite that strength, you know, that courage. Because at, at a certain point, well, not at a certain point, but I feel like the majority of the path is just learning to trust ourselves again because we didn't really necessarily have that safe space when you we were younger, you know? But now with the newer generations, the parents that have awakened to that reality themselves now can do that from the get-go as best they can, you know? And that's like the ultimate gift because then these children are not going to have to relearn to trust themselves, you know? They're trusting from out the gate, <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And someone said something, I was doing an interview with someone yesterday and they, they shared this quote that I'd never heard before. They said, uh, People enter your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And I thought that was so good because we were talking, it was in the context of some people just aren't your people or some people are your people for a period of time and then they're not. And had I known that when I was a lot younger, I took all of my relationships, my parents are still married, 35 years going strong. I took every relationship that came into my life as something I needed to hold on to, especially when I got into my intimate relationships, dating girls and all this stuff. I was so uncomfortable with letting people go because I also lost my grandfather at a very young age. And so I had a little bit of that separation anxiety of losing someone and never having them again that made me be really attached. And I think if we recognize that People are going to come into your life sometimes just for a split second, sometimes for a few years sometimes for a chapter of life. And sometimes, I mean, I do have people in my life who are clearly my lifetime family. Like they're, they're here for a reason. But that even your blood family, and a lot of people are not gonna like this, but even your blood family, your parents, some, some of your siblings, your close childhood friends that you've been with for years, at some point you might recognize that, hey, we just, we're not as congruent as we used to be. It's time for me to go this way. doesn't mean that you have to write them off forever. Maybe you do, but that separation is important in order to keep pursuing that direction of, of personal truth. Mm, yeah. 
That's a great point. And it's a great piece, especially in this year, I find because the kind of, you know, revealing of where relationships really stand, I feel are certainly coming to the surface for a lot of people at this time. And that's a beautiful, like kind of uh, supporting, you know, perspective to hold and to kind of live by, because I only see that becoming more intense. And I only see, I see that only becoming more revealed, you know, because relationships, I was having a conversation with a friend this week about that, where she's like, oh, it's funny, you know, this hear how it's like well it's sad to see you know it was kind of she was coming at it from that perspective it's unfortunate but you know it can be unfortunate it can be experienced as very saddening when you start to see that a friend that you may have had for such a long time you may have never had the opportunity to get so intimate like we all have this year about one topic you know or one group of topics that forces intimacy because you have to share what you're actually seeing because now you're having to navigate this together right <laughs> so boom now all of a sudden a friendship that you thought was this is all of a sudden that and that can be extremely difficult but yeah i mean the reality is you know things are ever changing <laughs> and, absolutely yeah. man and i think again what this year has revealed is the bigger elephant in the room is as a people our ridiculously uncomfortable relationship with death that we have and when you really take a hard look at the healthcare system and how it's organized, at least in the Western world, that the sole objective is the perpetuation of life and the preservation of life, not the quality of life, not the what you do in between the lines, but just extending it as long as possible. And, you know, I think there's death as an actual physiological piece, but there's also death as just a metaphor for completion. And in this topic of relationships, the discomfort we have with completing relationships with going our separate ways, that there has to be some sort of fracturing. You know, how many people have to have a huge blow up argument with their girlfriend or boyfriend in order to finally break up with them? Or there has to be some sort of significant event. I mean, I know there's like people talking about conscious uncoupling now. So there's a little bit more of this peacefulness or recognition of, hey, we're just going different ways right now, being brought into the space. But for so many of us, that anxiety we have around finality, completion, death, I, and I, I can only speak from my own experience. Breakups were devastating for me. Even if I knew they needed to happen, they were so hard because of all the expectation I built up around having that person in my life forever. And it really set me up for failure and a lot, a lot of suffering because I wasn't ready to say, hey, say la vie, you know, I wish you the best. And I think there's a lot of people who are just not prepared to do that in their life and in all the different domains that we have to, you know, even if it's a business, you know, how many people lost their jobs this year because of COVID or weren't able to do what they do and their world crumbled, right? How many people, you know, marriages, divorces, all this stuff that's, that's ending and it's sending so many people in a tailspin because they don't have a relationship with ends and new beginnings. Yeah, again, another good point. I mean, it's just a, it's a never ending discussion piece, because like you said, it relates to everything in our experience. And at the core, the way I see it is like, it relates to identity, you know, where is our identity held? So if our identity is held as a spouse, or as a, you know, job worker in this, you know, job, or as this type of person who believes in this, or doesn't believe in this, or is left or wing or right wing, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just an ongoing threat to that identity. 
that's essentially what every moment really is. You know, that's why people are so afraid to live in the moment because to live in the moment means there has to be a willingness to allow for, not even allow, but to surrender to the natural death of identity that happens moment to moment. Because in one moment, a belief may be useful for you. And then in the next moment, it may no longer, you know, like, so it's kind of this constant, like malleability that is, and flexibility that can be helpful there. And, you know, and essentially the way I view the whole spiritual path as a whole, or the path of awakening, whatever term we're using, essentially it's, it's a path of dying before you die. You know, it's to face, you know, this impending death that is coming for all of us and recognize our eternal nature, whether that's spirit or soul or the true self and, and see ourselves as that and come to know ourselves as that. So that death, you know, as a fixated endpoint of this physical life is, you know, no longer really feared. And also the death of every moment, you know, all these identities that we hold on to that are ever changing relationships, jobs, you know, belief structures, whether we're, you know, going from this perspective to that perspective. I mean, it's just kind of like this never-ending process, really. <laughs> oh, that was so good. That was so, I'm so glad that you just tied it up like that because that was brilliant. And I actually feel like maybe that's a good point because I know I could see already that you and I could go on forever. We probably need to just get together and have a cup of coffee and do this. But needless to say, all things must come to an end, right? Or at least the close of this chapter. I want to ask you a few lightning round questions before I kick you off and let you tell us where we can go to follow you, find you, and find out about what you're doing. Sound good? Yeah. Awesome. So what is one thing you've learned in your life you wish you knew when you were 18? Um, that I'm already loved. <laughs> it's a simple tool, you know, because I mean, I remember when I was 18, I was looking for love, you know, so I'm already loved and I already am love. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> Heck yeah, man. Me too. I was right there with you. What do you think is the most important value to have as a man? These kind of questions I usually go with first comes up. I don't know. I maybe would have if I thought about it deeper, I'd have a more complex answer. But the first thing that came was integrity. You know, I feel if we align our you know thoughts, words, and actions, and we're in that that flow of this this alignment, then integrity manifests as you know righteous action, however that looks to you. But that's been a yeah, that's been a key one on my path. All right, cool. And here's another one: spontaneous lightning question. What does the world need more of from men right now? Compassion. And I feel compassion is also synonymous with discipline. And that's funny because most of the time we don't connect the two. But in my path, I realized that compassion and discipline come hand in hand. And, you know, a lot of times when we're in a disciplined mode, this is the best way we're being compassionate to ourselves. And then other times when we kind of go in this more what we view as compassion, which could be more soft and gentle, many times that gives us the balance to release from maybe more rigid discipline. So I feel like these two really like beautifully mesh. And I think they really bring a, a deeper perspective perspective to what we've typically thought of discipline and what we typically thought of as compassion, you know, as we bring those together. So, yeah. I love that, man. That's how I know you're a martial artist because only martial artists know that discipline and compassion are relatives, not strangers. <laughs> that's, that's everyone out there who does my, you know, you know what he's talking about. Beautiful, Corey. Well, where can all the people follow you, find you, hear more about what you're doing? Anything you want to share with us about you and your world, please indulge us. Well, this has been great. First, I want to thank you for this. And uh, it's great to flow. And yeah, we could go for hours, I'm sure. So maybe part two and three, whatever. But yeah, Infinite Chic on Instagram. My Facebook recently got deleted, hacked and deleted, but I'm back on there. But Infinite Chic is uh, where you get on Instagram. Same with YouTube. And then AYP.life, Awaken Your Potential or AYP.life is uh, just, I have endless stuff there. So yeah, that's where we can connect. Heck yeah, man. Well, I'm so grateful to have had you on here and to get to know you a little bit. This is really the first time we've dropped in. So yeah, man, definitely look forward to chapter two, three, four, however many we do. Stay warm up there in Ottawa. Yeah, bro. Thank you, man. <laughs> Enjoy it up there. And uh, yeah, man, thanks for everything you're doing. I appreciate you. Yeah. Blessings, man. 
All right, fam, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Remember to go to risingman.org slash ignite to get yourself enrolled in our latest 12-week online course. It's amazing. I can't wait to see you guys get in there. So go ahead and jump in today. Check out the links for show notes and resources over at risingman.org. And make sure you get registered on our Instagram at Rising Man Movement and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Rising Man Movement. As always, lots of love and gratitude to my power team for riding it out with me through all the bumps, through the learning curves. You know, a lot of times, I don't know what perspective you guys get out there, but I'm learning and figuring this out as I go. And I'm grateful to have men on my team who are compassionate and patient, but also call me on my BS and let me know when I need to step it up. Every guy needs to have a team like that. So Rowan, Sean, Julian, Ryan, Mark, and Kyle, thank you guys for always being that for me helping me with this podcast and everything else that we do. And everybody else out there, thank you. Thank you for the support. Thank you for giving me a reason why each and every week. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.